This week on Geek Explained, it's a double feature as we review Daredevil Season 3 and Fantastic Beasts The Crimes of Grindelwald. Welcome back to Geek Explain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we Geek Explain it. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is kind of getting back into the swing of things. Uh, last week, we did kind of like a eulogy slash uh, tribute for Stan Lee. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Stan Lee passed away last week, so we did a little impromptu uh, tribute to Stan for last week's episode, but this week we are kind of getting back on schedule. I was supposed to have um, our review for Daredevil Season 3 last week, but because of the events with uh, Stan Lee, that didn't end up happening. And this week actually was supposed to be the... Um, the original plan was for it to be uh, Castlevania Season 2 review, but uh, we're going to push that back till next week. And this week, we are going to kind of cut together both uh, the Daredevil Season 3 review as well as the review for Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. I saw that this last week, and uh, yeah, we, um, we I went and saw it. Uh, this past weekend it was interesting um i will get into that in the uh the upcoming review but um these last couple weeks have also been kind of notable for what's going on around me um uh for those of you who don't know i live in the la area and for the past week or two we have been dealing with the fires the california wildfires that have been really just messing up uh la both in the uh ventura area as well as a little bit closer to home near the uh um, griffith park uh two separate fires both of them uh, i believe the griffith park fire is completely contained and the other fire that's near uh, ventura and calabasas malibu that area um is around like 40 to 50 percent contained uh so the first responders uh fire department working on those have been nothing short of heroic working through their uh their efforts to contain the fires and so from everyone here at geek explain i just want to express my uh gratitude for them uh for those of you who don't know my girlfriend actually works at the uh, california wildlife center who work on uh rehabilitating uh wildlife taking them in nursing them back to health releasing them back into the wild and um their center is right near where the uh where one of the fires has been and they had to evacuate the center they had they basically displaced all the animals that were in their care so they've been working tirelessly for the past couple weeks to send animals to other centers to take care of the animals that they couldn't find homes for and now thankfully since the fire has been mostly contained they've been able to move the animals that they do have back into the center and kind of start 
working back towards a semblance of normalcy there. But yeah, so that's what's been going on there. Um, otherwise, you know, just gearing up for Thanksgiving. So that's always a fun time, holidays and all that. But um, I've rambled on a little bit here, so we will jump right into the review. Uh, we'll start off with the review for Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Alright, so Crimes of Grindelwald. Um, we saw it this past weekend, and man, um, I can't think of, just off the top of my head, I can't think of a film that has more missed opportunity than that film has. I have, I mean, now actually think of it Justice League, but like Fantastic Beasts, Crimes of Grindelwald, had all of the promise to be another just home run. Uh, for me, I really, 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 really enjoyed the first Fantastic Beasts film, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, and I was super hyped to see this film. I was just... Uh, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan, always have been. Um, just jumping back into that world is so... I don't want to say magical, because that's really... That's like way on the nose but um it's it evokes a feeling in me that i it brings me back to my childhood growing up reading these books and seeing the films that uh, were based off of them and when i got to step into back into that world in not only just in that world but in the 1920s which is one of my favorite eras in uh in modern history I was really excited, and the first film, I thought, again, knocked it out of the park. I thought it was everything that it needed to be, everything that it should be, kind of building this world and introducing these characters that, while didn't get, maybe get as much uh, character development as they possibly should have, served the world that they lived in really well. And this film, this film takes everything that was built in the first uh in the first film and tries to cram in three more movies inside of it in one two-hour film uh it was really really disjointed uh the editing is all over the place uh characters do things and say things that don't make any sense uh there's a lot of conveniences and um just it it lacks I guess is the word I'm looking for. Uh, they did have a lot of hype going into it uh, with the promise that, oh, you know, with how light and fun the first film is going to be, this film is going to be darker. This film is going to be something that is um, kind of resets and brings it kind of back down to that grittiness that the uh, later original film or original uh, series recently had. But I was really, um, I was really interested in seeing what they were gonna do with um, Grindelwald, because Johnny Depp, he's all over the place. He's, uh, for better or for worse, he's a very well-known and prolific actor, and I think that he really thrives in genre roles. Um, Edward Scissorhands, Pirates, Sweeney Todd. So I thought he would fit in really, really well here. And to be honest, for the most part, I think he does. 
I think serving as the film's villain, really getting to kind of chew the scenery that's around him as well as get his menacing moments in where he could really just let loose and be as evil as possible. The opening sequence to this film really set me on a path to thinking this is going to be incredible. Um, the way it was shot, just the um, inventiveness with it's essentially a height or not a heist but like a prison break and escape and getting to see that was really incredible because i mean we all we always hear about how sirius black broke out of azkaban he was the first wizard to ever break out of azkaban and we never really knew how he did it we never really knew like what the specifics were how he was able to get out of azkaban but we get to see a just as um, pure as you can get it escape from custody, from wizard prison, where um, Grindelwald is being transported from the uh, Magical Congress to the Ministry of Magic in the UK. That's another thing, as a side note, that really bothered me. Um, they referred to the uh, magical congress of america as the american ministry of magic and stuff like that really bothered me because i i i thought it was really cool in the first film how they set up oh you know this is the it's not the ministry of magic over here it's the magical congress like really um giving it an identity and when they just put up the graphic, you know, American Ministry of Magic, it's like, okay, you took the character away from it. Like, I get we're not going to be spending a whole lot of time in the U.S. here, but you didn't need to dumb it down. Everyone, at least I assume, watched the first movie. They know what it is, so why would you just um, simplify it to the point that it bothers people like me? But anyway, so... He's being transported, and the, the the sequence that ends up happening... I won't go too deep into spoilers, though I'm probably going to go into spoilers later. But this was just incredible. I mean, the, the rain, the thunderstorm, the uh, useless escorts on broomsticks that were surrounding him. It was just... it was great. And at the end of that... Uh, at the end of that sequence, I thought, this is going to be incredible. This is going to be a huge step up and a huge statement for this franchise. Because for those of you who don't know, this is going to be a five-film series. And there was a lot of um, a lot of hesitation, a lot of trepidation for the idea of, oh my god, it's going to be five films. What are we going to do here? But I really enjoyed what I saw in that opening segment, and I thought to myself, well, this is clearly a sign that things are going to be very good for this. And what followed was, to me, what seemed like a tight story for the first, I want to say like an hour? For the first hour, it was very, very tight. It felt like the first film, the great thing about the first film was that it had a focused story yeah there were characters that didn't seem to fit together as the story progressed but you saw where they fit into the story as the film went from start to finish and this very much felt the same 
it was like, okay, we know Credence is in France for some reason. We're going to France. We're going to find Credence. That's the goal. That's the, um, that is the end game for this, is we find Credence and we rescue him from Grindelwald. And we get our first appearance from uh, Dumbledore, played by Jude Law. And I will say, I will say for me personally, having seen it, having thought about it, slept on it, I thought that Dumbledore was the best character in the film. Uh, Jude Law, who is probably one of the most likable actors you will ever find for any reason, um, really just inhabits this role. Um, I would say that the closest thing that I could see to like make a comparison would be uh, James McAvoy doing a young Charles Xavier, where there's moments where you're like, there is no way that Jude Law... Jude Law's Dumbledore becomes Richard Harris or um oh god I can't remember I can't remember the name of the second Dumbledore oh my god oh my god anyway um there are moments where I'm like there's no way he turns into that he's too suave he's too cool he's too like all of this stuff but then there are other moments where he's interacting with certain characters where you could see it you can see the twinkle in his eye. You can see the fact that he cares about people. You can see him teaching. And I was really, really just enthralled by his performance. From the moment that he shows up to task Newt with finding, uh, with finding Credence, all the way through, I was really... I bought in. I bought in immediately. The one thing that I will say is as much as I loved his character... Dumbledore did not need to be in this film. I will tell you why. Uh, getting into spoilers here, um, his basic impetus for not being able to go after uh, Grindelwald we f- kind of starts off as like, oh, we don't know why. It's, is it because he's you know still in love with him, which they kind of touch on, but they kind of don't. There's a moment where they're like, you and Grindelwald used to be brothers. And he was like, no, we were closer than brothers. And it's like that moment where it's like, Ooh, and he shows up in the mirror of Erised for Dumbledore. And it's like, Ooh, but they never go out and say, hey, these guys used to be lovers. So I don't know if they're going to um, touch more on that as the movies progress. I hope they do, just for the sake of character depth and for um, kind of aligning all the stuff that is has been set before. But I really, really was interested in why he wouldn't go after Grindelwald. And I assumed that it was because he was still in love with him and he didn't want to harm him. But as we come to find out, the reason that he can't, you know, um, take up arms against Grindelwald is because he did a little blood pact with him while they were younger, basically saying that we're not going to go after each other. And it's not like a blood pact like you see like drunk frat guys do when they go to Vegas for the first time and they're like, blood pact, we're getting laid tonight. It's a blood pact where they physically cut their hands open they sealed it magical little trinket that is containing both of their blood and the official like um uh the official spell the official like 
blood pact is contained in this little trinket that Grindelwald keeps around his neck. And as long as that thing stays intact, they can't go after each other. Um, this means that Dumbledore can't go after Grindelwald. He can't go to the front lines where everyone wants him because they're like, you're the most powerful wizard ever. But it also means, and I don't think they really talked about this enough, that it also means that Grindelwald can't go to the school and go after Dumbledore. I don't know if that would ever cross his mind. I don't know if that would go into his plans. But I guess we saw Voldemort attack the school on like 700 occasions. So I guess we kind of needed a reason for Grindelwald not to. But I liked it. I liked it. At the same time, I thought it was kind of a cop-out of basically saying, like, oh, no, he can't go after him because they pinky-sweared, and there's, like, a magical pinky-swear going on. And so every, um, uh, every like, aspect, every kind of hope of, oh, we're going to get to see Dumbledore, like, throwing down in his prime wasn't there. Wasn't there at all because he was basically a he was glorified exposition which sucked which really sucked and though the moments that he had in this film were poignant were well acted um he didn't need to be in the story he didn't need to be in the story um outside of him giving uh of him giving newt the mission to go after credence and then him at the very end where newt shows up with the little blood pact thing so that hey let's break this so you can fight grindelwald all the stuff in between of him showing up him having a conversation with lita him working with students his flashbacks his uh moment in the mirror with Ariset, like it, it didn't need to be in there because there was no payoff and i know it's movie two in a five movie series but when you're building up this whole thing of like oh it's it's fucking it's dumbledore dumbledore's in his prime you're gonna get to see dumbledore and you blue ball us for the entire film and then at the end are like hey dumbledore is gonna be around in the next movie which will be two years from now it's like well why did we waste all this time with him then and this um this speaks to a larger problem in the film in that they tried to cram in too much just for the sake of getting it out of the way. I was really curious at the end of the film and I was thinking about it and I was like, why did they put so much into this film when they had five films to stretch this across? This film could have easily been broken up into two and it would have really the films would have been better for it and after thinking about it after taking some time the only possible reason i can think right now of why they did this was because they didn't think it was interesting and they wanted to get it out of the way so they could get to the interesting stuff which sucks because it makes this movie feel like a filler piece and not much else um we got the reappearance of uh Jacob and Queenie, which was fun. They were my, uh, they were two highlights in the first film. I really thought that uh, Jacob Kowalski brought a new, fresh perspective that uh, 
is sorely needed in that and that he is the um he's the person experiencing this for the first time he's the muggle or the nomad or the can't spell and just as a side note i love love the name can't spell i think that's so juvenile and really like almost um schoolyard in its insult that I really want to know which country calls us, calls muggles can't spells. It's like, oh, get out of here, you stupid can't spell. Like, it's just, I love it. But going back to the point is that, like, he had a really weird role in this film. Um, him and Queenie show up, and Queenie has enchanted him when he first showed up i was like he is acting super out of character and i don't really know if i like this and then they explained it away with oh queenie's enchanting him that's why he is um acting so weird and he went back to being the jacob from the first film and i was like okay cool great perfect love it but then as the story progressed, he kept getting separated from Newt. He didn't add anything. And he just, again, I felt that his story was so nice across the first film. We didn't need to see him again. Same for Queenie. Same for Queenie. Because she uh, she has a lot of problems in this movie. I really I really enjoyed how... Um, how light and innocent and naive she was in the first film um but here they stretch it out to the point of her throwing like a temper tantrum her um her bewitching jacob because they can't get married in the u.s to which like go to the uk because it seems like they're okay with it seems like they're just fine we haven't heard any law against in the uk they I'm pretty sure they specifically mentioned oh yeah the american ministry again oh makes my blood boil but it's like why it's so easy to explain it away but you didn't because you wanted to cram more characters into the story and then queenie whose entire character is that she is innocent and naive but she can read minds goes over at the end of the film to grindelwald's side and it's like yeah i get it i was on board with it as it was happening i was on board with it because i thought to myself she's naive she is um at a very low point emotionally of course she's going to go to somebody who seems to know what they're talking about but then I thought about it, her entire ability is that she could read minds. How could she not tell that he is deceiving her? And it's like, they gave no inclination of that even being like a, a point that of that being even possible. They played with her, um, her telepathy in that she had like an argument with Jacob and then she had like this weird, um, charles xavier style hearing everyone in france and getting really overwhelmed which is fine just totally fine but that's where it ended that's where the her abilities ended and it's like they just shut it off for the rest of the film and i was really frustrated with that um what else what else happened um 
I will say I loved seeing Hogwarts again. When that Hogwarts theme kicked on, the little da 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 Like, it really, it brought me back again. Seeing the castle, seeing young McGonagall, which don't even get me started on the timeline weirdness that causes. But, like, really just being in there made me miss the old movies and also made me... It took me out of the film for a second because I'm like, all the interesting stuff is happening here. Like, I just... It was... And it didn't help that the Hogwarts scenes had Dumbledore, who was, again, for me, the most interesting character in the entire film. And it's like, I just want to stay here. I want to know what the um, academic climate is there. I want to know where the teachers are at, like who they are, what's going on. So I was really, um, I loved the Hogwarts scenes, but again, it was something that you didn't need something that you didn't need pushed in there um they go to france they find out that uh credence has been working in this traveling circus where we meet nagini who is a person not a snake she can turn into a snake okay so basically they explain that nagini has this like weird uh i don't know if it's like hereditary or if it's some kind of curse or if it's some kind of like blood poison or whatever but it forces her over the course of her life to be able to turn into an animal though because of this curse or um illness or whatever at some point she's going to be stuck in that animal form forever and that's just how the rest of her life is going to go and for me, I thought, cool, you're expanding upon it. Do we need it? Do we need it? Because at that point, what's stopping her from becoming part of Voldemort's plans later on? She seems like a smart girl. She seems like she's on the right side of things. She can clearly tell that things are wrong. She has common sense. And she's seeing all these stuff with Grindelwald so why would she become a part of this later on um again it was something that they didn't need it was something that they didn't need and if they took it out it would have been more focused uh Credence is Credence uh he got some really beautiful visuals uh the part where he attacks the fucking Auror who is hunting him after he kills um his uh caretaker as a, as a baby was really stunning the building just like expanding and retracting and expanding and retracting it was really cool but then it didn't come into play for the rest of the film and they really um they didn't harp enough on the fact that he is the only obscurial to live past childhood which i guess like yeah i get it they was one of the main points of the first film but if you're going to make him a focal point of the second film then that should be on the table he should be doing his obscurial thing all the time because he it looks like he can do it at will maybe it's like a stress thing that it's like oh he has to be um he has to be under duress or something but i didn't i didn't understand it was the same thing with queenie's powers like why are they suddenly like not usable and then the big twist again big spoilers for this um 
you find out at the end of the film that this little bird, this little, like, um, baby bird that he has been caring for is actually a phoenix. And earlier in the film, Dumbledore says the phoenix is an animal that comes to my family, members of my family, when we're in need. And you come to find out at the very end of the film, Grindelwald reveals to Credence that he is, in fact... A Dumbledore. I didn't think it was bad. I didn't think it was bad. I didn't think it was a bad idea. I think it brings us some intrigue. But again, again, why? Why are we doing this? Why is Credence a Dumbledore? Like, I get it. It's going to be towards... Um, Grindelwald like using him to attack Dumbledore because he can't attack Dumbledore but like Credence was an interesting enough character without this and this might not even be the truth in the first place he might not I would honestly 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 I would um, I would probably actually prefer that Grindelwald was lying to him the whole time and has been manipulating this to make him think he is a Dumbledore because Credent, or uh, Grindelwald knows that Credence is the most powerful weapon that he can point at Dumbledore and at the rest of the wizarding world. And so I I didn't like, I, I don't know, I don't know. I really wanted to like this movie. I know I'm really down on this, but I really wanted to like this movie. Um, there were there were characters I really liked. There were characters I really liked. I like Newt. I like how he's weird. I like how he's kind of antisocial. I like how he doesn't really fit into things. How he doesn't like getting into conflicts. He doesn't like choosing sides. I like that. But at the same time, there are moments where I'm like, Newt, you're being kind of a dick. Like to his brother. His brother, who in the grand scheme of things, yeah, he's kind of pushy. Yeah, he's like, hey, baby brother, you got to grow up and start taking responsibilities. He did nothing wrong. He did nothing wrong. He did nothing wrong. He is just being a protective older brother and is getting completely just crapped on for it. But, um, man, uh, I, where are we at? We're little ways into this. So I should talk about the character that I that frustrated me the most. Um, the character that frustrated me the most is Lita Lestrange. And I wanted to like her. Zoe Kravitz is a great actress. She has a great look. She has been nothing short of pleasant in every role that I've seen hers up to this point. But, man, her character didn't do anything here. Her character didn't do anything except provide more exposition. We got flashbacks from her about her not being able to fit in because she's a Lestrange. And Lestrange, Lestrange. Um, and the fact that like she, her only friend, her literal only friend in Hogwarts was Newt. They were the, they're each other's only friends. They didn't have any friends. But somehow... She ends up with Newt's brother. How? How does that happen? Like, 
and I understand, I understand, I understand. Second movie in a five movie series, but they kill her at the end of the film, so we're not going to get any kind of explanation on how that happened. We're not going to get any kind of explanation on what her motivations were, why her family was so um, was so hated, how she got through school, why her and Newt broke up. It's just the they made this threat in the first film about Lita Lestrange and that that's a plot point for later but they just put it as a little a little thread they said like we're giving you this this is gonna get explained later but we're not gonna focus on any of it because we're not giving you any answers which is fine but they did that again here and there was nothing there was nothing at all to this to her and this whole idea of like, oh, it's her older brother, it's her younger brother, Credence is her brother, Credence isn't her brother, her brother died, she traded babies, her real brother died in the ocean. Just all of this stuff that, again, didn't need to be there. It didn't need to be there. And it just, it was, oh God, it was frustrating because I held on hope throughout the entire film. I was like, we've been talking about this character, we've been really putting in the time, and there's gotta be a payoff. There's gotta be a payoff. There's gonna be a payoff. And she's gonna be an ally for the rest of the series. But they killed her, making everything that happened mean nothing. I just, I really, again, I really wanted to like this. There were certain aspects I really, 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 really liked. I just, I couldn't get past it. I couldn't get past the stuff that was wrong. I couldn't get past the stuff that bothered me. I couldn't get past the stuff that frustrated me. I couldn't get past the stuff that didn't make sense. Um, there was a genuine point during the film when they're in, like, um, uh, they're in the crypt and they're talking about trading babies and stuff and the guy who is her brother who is not her brother I just I got lost I got genuinely lost in the exposition that was going on in this film and it wasn't like a oh it's a clever reveal or whoa what a twist this is going to change the way we look at these characters it's just exposition that you just get lost in and you don't care about so um Overall, overall, um, I was not a fan of this film. I really hope that they rein it in for the third film. Um, someone brought up a good point to me the other day that, like, since J.K. Rowling is penning these alone, um, there's going to be growing pains from the purely visual medium purely um, on the page to jumping to an audiovisual medium and it's you can see it you can you can clearly see it in this film so i hope that she brings in somebody to help her for the next few films because if they're all going to be like this where they just blow through because they're like oh we're going to get all this exposition out of the way so we can get to the stuff that we actually care about then i'm not going to watch the rest of these films so 
I've been really negative and I feel really bad because uh, I wanted to like this film and I love just that whole wizarding world. I love Harry Potter. But um, if I had to give this like a rating or something out of five, I think I've been doing, I would give this a solid two out of five. Like, and that's for me, that's being generous. Um, there's just, for all the good that this movie does, it gets weighed down and just smothered by the stuff that it does wrong. So that is my review for uh, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. So I won't lie, that was a little bit more uh, negative than I um, originally set out to be, but um, yeah, so... (laughs) Um, there is, there is that, uh, but on a positive note, Daredevil season three, um, I really enjoyed it. So we will jump into that review right now. Oh my God. Daredevil season three was so good. I, oh my God. I love this show. It was so good. It was so good. Um, you could I, honestly I could probably just keep saying it was so good for the next like 30 40 minutes I won't I won't I want to make that clear but um, I could because it was so good um, this is the uh, this is the review for Daredevil season 3 uh, it dropped on Netflix around um, almost like oh god like almost a month ago was it but um, it's been a while, so um, that uh, I have been waiting to review this. Um, I took a little bit longer than I normally would to um, get to the point where I could uh, review it. I was watching it with my girlfriend throughout, and our schedules were really screwy during the month of October, so um, it was a little tough to take the time to sit down and watch the episodes but when we did oh boy did we enjoy them um i'm not gonna go uh episode by episode but um there are going to be uh some pretty distinct and heavy spoilers ahead so if you haven't watched it what are you doing go watch it right now um and let's get into it uh first of all this season was framed just perfectly framed around the private war that was going on between Wilson Fisk and Matt Murdock and every step of the way literally I'm not saying figuratively literally every step of the way I was engrossed I was enthralled I was just god I was on board I was so so good um i really loved loved um just all the characters on here um vincent d'onofrio's wilson fisk is a delight it's a pure delight we really got to um get acquainted and fall in love with the character in the first season uh and he we got a little snippet of him in the second season which kind of teased this idea that oh he's gaining power in prison and he's he's going to be back and he's going to be bigger he's going to be darker and this season was the culmination and the fulfillment of that promise um wilson fisk is firing on all cylinders at every point in this 
season. He is always, well, not always, but he is, I want to say 90% of the time, four steps ahead of Matt, Foggy, and Karen at any given point. And just the fact that he just had a stranglehold on the entire city was incredible. From lowly street gangs to the friggin' FBI. Like, this guy had connections, he had control, and he was running the place, which made it so much more satisfying as a viewer when Matt finally takes him down in the final episode. Uh, we know that it's not perfect, we know it's not the way that um, he fucking Karen wanted it to go down, but in true Netflix Marvel fashion, it's the only way it could have gone down. Um, Matt Murdock is a treasure. Matt Murdock should be protected at all costs. Um, he is just... He goes through so much in this season. And I know saying that, like, he goes through a lot in both season one and season two, but you really get to see him just at the lowest point and get to crawl whether metaphorically or physically out from that place into a sense of normalcy a sense of fulfillment and a sense of um redemption this entire season is the redemption of matt murdoch because within the first couple episodes he is broken down he is disbarred he is um a wanted criminal wanted by the FBI. He is on the run. He is homeless. He is evicted. Like, he is just... Oh my god, he's so good. He's so good. Um, and the... Just the... The metamorphosis that he goes through. Uh, not really ever putting the red suit on once. Going back to... What I, and I think a lot of people, preferred was the black suit look from the first season. Um... It was just, it was watching him be born again. Pun intended. Um, he was just, at every point, he was learning more things about himself, more about the people around him, more about his personal connections, more about his past. As he went, and he was having different, like, hallucinatory um, conversations with, like, his own versions of his dad, his own versions of Wilson Fisk. And it was just incredible getting to see what he did throughout this season. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about episode four. Episode four contains the um, the one shot that is, I don't want to say required in every Daredevil season, but always seems to find itself sneaking in. And this one is the mother of all hallway fights. This one is incredible. He is in the prison, in the like the medical ward, and he throughout the 15 minutes, I think, that this goes, fights his way through people trying to kill him in that room, fights his way through multiple hallways inside this prison into a full-on full dialogue scene with a mob boss then moving into more hallways fighting more people until he's able to fight his way out of the prison and into um into the courtyard where this whole riot is happening fighting more people and finally makes his way out of the prison into the back of a cab 
and it's like it's incredible from start to finish um and it like it doesn't there's no big like there's no big sign of like here's the one shot here is your um every season designated one shot uh one take scene but it's like you 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 catch you catch it i caught it i want to say like three or four minutes in where i'm like they haven't cut yet oh they haven't cut away yet oh this is it this is the one what's going on what's gonna happen and the fact that he is in matt murdoch clothes street clothes he's got a suit on no glasses because he's not technically matt murdoch he is he stole uh foggy's wallet and was pretending to be him to get into the prison but just the oh so good because the entire time he's also keeping his blind eyes and i know that sounds weird but that's the only way i can explain it um his blind eyes the way that he looks when he's the way he's trained himself to act blind when he is having those more intimate scenes those more intimate moments where he's just matt burdock um was great was just great um charlie cox is a treasure he inhabits this character he has such a mastery of the character and knowing how he fits into his world that any other person would have just not done well we talk about um perfect castings like we talk about uh hugh jackman as wolverine we talk about um Tony or uh, Tony Stark is Iron Man. We talk about Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man. We talk about, um, to a certain extent, you know, Chris Evans as Captain America, and I think that Charlie Cox deserves to be in that conversation because he brings such a gravitas, such a uh, such a sense of nobility to the character, while at the same time being down, gritty. You can tell he's the son of a boxer, and he's just he's perfect he's perfect as matt murdoch and my fear my fear is that we've almost told every story that there is to tell for him um that remains to be seen if uh daredevil goes the way of iron fist and luke cage where it gets canceled or if um they end up going on to a season four i want it to go on to a season four i would love for it to go on to a season four um but we'll have to see um also big highlight for me bullseye bullseye so so good i can't remember the name of the actor off the top of my head i apologize but he was pitch perfect for this character uh and it's really interesting because for um a lot of people who don't know bullseye and this is gonna sound weird when i say this but Hang with me here. Bullseye is almost Marvel's Joker in the fact that he is ruthless, he is nearly unstoppable, and he has no set origin. Bullseye is notable, just like the Joker, for not having an origin. There have been um, comics about him, there has been a comic about his origin, but at the end of the comic, it is heavily alluded to that he lied or he made it up just like the joker in the killing joke and it's just it's so incredible to me to see how they f took this character who didn't have an established backstory made one up for him and just made him such a full complete character having him have um mental health issues a lack of empathy um to go along with his 
just amazing accuracy and marksmanship really creates a the perfect ingredients for a compelling villain and the fact that he you see him evolve throughout the season you get acquainted with him i want to say at the end of season or the end of episode was it the episode one episode one or two like at the very end of the episode you see him just running and waste these uh these mobsters trying to kill kingpin and he's just like ricocheting bullets like he is an unstoppable killing machine and i loved every single bit of his development the fact that he we got his backstory we got um this girl that he was in love with and stalked that we can't even really say that like he was in love with her he just had this obsession with her because she was a um a guiding force in his life and he you see throughout the season that he was raised on this idea that he needs a guiding hand and if he doesn't have it his world crumbles so he seeks these guiding hands obsessively to make sure that he has stability in his life and i think that's such a good motivation for a character um and his full debut technically as bullseye as uh, in episode six where he fights Matt Murdock, who is um, in his um, vigilante persona at the time, his nameless vigilante persona, fighting in an office space. And I have never, ever, ever thought of an office space as the perfect battleground for two Marvel Comics characters, but oh my god, did they prove me wrong. Uh, this episode was so tense, was so um, nail-biting. It had me at the edge of my seat for everyone involved in the scene. And he, I kept, it, it became a running joke with um, me and my girlfriend while we were watching this. Um, everything is a weapon to Bullseye. Uh, whether it's a stapler, whether it's a pair of scissors, whether it's just normal office supplies. I think at one point he like ricocheted like a uh, a keyboard. There was a point where he where uh, Matt was like hiding around a corner and like I don't know I can't remember it right now off the top of my head how he got this baseball, but he ricochets this baseball off a wall to smack Matt right in the face just to show him that like hey. I'm just as good as you are. And the fact that they really played up the idea that hand-to-hand -hand Matt will take him, Matt can take him, but that from a ranged perspective, Matt doesn't, Matt doesn't have a chance. And because um, Poindexter came up through the FBI system, he learned how to be strategic, he learned how to be a tactician, he recognizes his weakness in the hand-to-hand -hand aspect in this initial fight and relocates himself further away so that he can use what he does best and all of their fights were so tense were so um engaging that every time they got in each other's path you felt nervous for matt and there's no other character i would say throughout all three of these seasons um that really evokes this idea of matt can't beat him matt physically can't beat him and just the whole every battle that they had including the one in the church which was kind of like their climax where um they really like played up the fact that matt is not able to 
um, defeat him at range. And then they have that beautiful three-way fight in uh, Kingpin's penthouse in the final episode where um, Matt and Bullseye ended up fighting each other while Kingpin is like trying to get Vanessa away. And you just, you recognize that, Matt, why are you fighting him? You can't beat him. You just can't. And every single fight Matt loses against him for the most part. And it's just, it's incredible. And at the very end, um, Kingpin breaks his back, paralyzes him for the waist down, and we get the post-credits scene where it looks like they're welding some experimental metal to his back and for those who aren't up and up on his character in the comics his multiple limbs multiple uh bones in his body have been laced with adamantium making him indestructible he doesn't have the full skeleton like wolverine has but certain high impact points he does which makes him even more deadly and if it comes out later i know they said it was a different metal but if it does come out later that hey this is adamantium this could be our step into the x-men coming into the marvel universe i know that's a big 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 claim but it's not so far out of the realm of possibility anymore but he was incredible. Um, who else? Um, Karen went through a lot in this season. Uh, she did a lot. We got a lot of uh, character development for her, a lot of character depth. The only thing, and I I feel really bad saying this, but the only, I think, black spot on this season was Karen's backstory episode. Because we didn't need it. We didn't need it. It slowed the pace of everything down because this is one of the tightest. Um, uh, this is one of the tightest stories that any of the Marvel Netflix series have done, from point A to point B. Whether it's action, whether it's politicking, whether it's conversations, whether it's um, uh, scheming in the darkness, everything led into each other. This story was so tight was so compact was so focused that you were just completely taken in by it the entire time and i loved it i loved it but the episode where we jump back into karen's backstory really slows everything down and we don't need it and it's it's frustrating it's really frustrating because if they had just chopped off that episode it would have been a perfect season um not saying that it's like it's terrible it's awful everyone sucks you know uh, i don't care about these characters i do i absolutely do but that was something that we could have seen in season one and at this point we've gotten a clear um picture of karen's character and it didn't expand on anything it didn't make um it didn't make me care about her more because i i already was well invested in her character but it didn't make me invest in her more which is what a backstory like that a tragic backstory is supposed to do for your character you give them a tragic backstory to humble them to humanize them to make you relate to them so that when they rise out of it in spite of it you are able to feel the um the success with them you're able to feel that triumph of overcoming a tragic backstory to succeed in their goals but for this for this episode it didn't 
it wasn't it didn't connect it didn't connect to anything wider um just gave us uh a really just unnecessary backstory that they had already really kind of told us uh at multiple points in this season that oh hey i was involved in killing my brother and i'm really guilty about it so we already really got the gist of the story we didn't really need to see past that but that is all the negative you're going to hear from me because everyone else and everything else i thought was incredible this is the best season of netflix of marvel netflix that i have ever seen uh foggy is a standout as he always is in every single season um he was incredible getting to watch him go on this uh da race even though he knew he was going to lose uh was great i loved seeing him interacting with other characters i loved um seeing him interact with the officer i can't remember his name from the first season who's now a detective and them kind of calling back to their uh their interactions of the first season which were so um endearing and watching him almost grow up and yet stay just fiercely loyal to matt was incredible everyone should strive to have a friend and be a friend like foggy um whew, i'm trying to think what else um oh the uh the officer the fbi uh fbi agent um, I don't know why I'm blanking on his name right now, but he was great. The actor who portrayed this character was fantastic. Um, you really get invested in him in the first couple episodes. So when you find out that he's getting played and he is so fiercely trying to cling on to this idea of like, no, things have been so bad for so long and now I'm finally able to do something about it, it sucks and you feel bad for him. And then when he ultimately is brought in and is aware of what's been going on and is still forced to take part in it, you feel bad for him. And when he tragically dies in the last couple of episodes, um, it sucks. You know it's coming because he almost took on like the Ben Yurik role from the first season, but it is really a shame. So, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Overall, I loved, loved, loved this season. It was incredible. The storytelling was on point. Really just giving us every single... Oh, God. Sister Maggie. Sister Maggie. Um, his mom. Like, she was incredible. The actress who played her... Again, I'm so sorry I don't have the names on me right now. But she was just so, so, so good um, at being almost like sassy alfred to uh to charlie cox's batman and i really i really enjoyed their interactions and of course like i had read the comic that this uh took a lot of inspiration from so i knew that she was his mom already but the reveal still packs a punch it still sits on you and when you get her backstory when you get her meeting his dad for the first time when you get to see them together battling jack murdoch like how they came together how they um fell apart like it's again it's tragic and at the end to see matt kind of give her some closure and the fact that she didn't have to die to get that closure as a character was really fulfilling for me as a viewer so um just it's so good guys if you haven't watched it 
first of all, what are you listening to this for? This is spoiler-filled. But second of all, go watch it. Do yourself a favor. If you have dropped off Marvel Netflix recently, um, I wasn't a huge fan of uh, Luke Cage Season 2, or um, even though I really liked most of Iron Fist Season 2, the ending really bothered me. Um, this is a return to form for Marvel Netflix. Uh, this is really just... It, if this doesn't end up being the final season, then it is ratcheting it up to 11 and giving us a reason to get invested again. If it is the final season, it's the perfect ending for these characters, for this story, for this narrative. So um, if I had to give it a rating just just because of the Karen episode, I would give it like I would give it a solid can't take that much off of it i would give it and this is really arbitrary but i would give it a 4.75 out of 5 i do take off that 0.25 for um the karen episode but overall this was incredible this is the best season of marvel netflix so far and if the rest of the marvel netflix shows from here have the kind of character development have the kind of storytelling have the kind of overall um excellence that this season had we're going to be in for a lot of great marvel television so that is my review for um for daredevil season three uh stay tuned after the jump for this week in comics and thank you for listening all right so those were the two uh reviews for this week uh next week we will be uh finally finally um reviewing castlevania season two i know a lot of people have been waiting on it a lot of people have been reaching out to me asking for it so um i'm excited i'm excited to finally bring that review to get to you guys um but for though before we jump over to uh this week in comics uh, i wanted to uh just say something here because for those of you who don't live in the states i did just uh look at some of the stats and we officially have listeners in germany and norway along with all of our other uh listeners around the world thank you so much for listening um i really appreciate the uh just allowing uh my voice, this podcast, this um, pet project of mine to uh, come into your homes, come into your devices, come into your ears. Uh, I really appreciate you allowing me to do this. Uh, we've gotten a lot of support, especially recently, and uh, I just, I really appreciate it. And it's just, it's mind blowing every single time I pull up the stats for uh, my RSS feed and I see that we have listeners from Germany, listeners from Norway, listeners from Japan, listeners from uh, South America, all over the place. So I just um, I just want to say thank you. Tomorrow's Thanksgiving um, in here in the States and I am just really, really, really thankful for being for you guys for listening to this for listening to me for thinking that uh my opinion carries enough weight for you to listen to it for half an hour to an hour and a half to however long some of our episodes go 
So um, I'm really excited. I'm really just, again, super thankful. And I want to let you guys know that I appreciate it. I'm going to continue working and building off of uh, the foundation that we've set up for the first uh, set of episodes that we've done. And it's only going to get better. I've got a lot of plans for a lot of stuff. Um, our Kingdom Hearts series has been chugging along, has been killing it. You guys have been really enjoying it. Um, and I've got requests for other series to do. I've got requests for different um, for different style of episodes. I've gotten a lot of feedback on our uh, first installment of Pitch It that we did for um, our big 25th episode. So I've got more uh, um, requests for that. So look forward to that. I'm also hoping, uh, like other podcasts, to uh, get some interviews going. I would love to uh, reach out to professionals in the industry, whether it be uh, comics, film, TV, and more. Uh, so I am looking to hopefully make 2019 even bigger than 2018 has been. Uh, but that is enough of me being super mushy in all of that. I just want to say again, with Thanksgiving and the holidays coming up, I just want to say thank you from me to you, not just this podcast and everything that goes into it, from me, Eric Azana, thank you for listening. Um, we now return to your regularly scheduled podcast, where we will be jumping into This Week in Comics. All right, This Week in Comics. Welcome to This Week in Comics. Uh, this is the final segment of the podcast, where I will tell you the... Uh, top five, top six, top seven, depending on the week and how many good comics are out that week. Uh, comics that I am picking up and I think you should definitely check out. I'll be uh, giving you my picks, the creative teams, as well as a short synopsis of each. So uh, feel free to let me know if there are any comics that I missed here, any comics that you are checking out that you think I should check out, and we will jump right into it. So first on our list is Marvel Knights 20th Anniversary number two. Uh, this is number two of six. This is written by uh, Matthew Rosenberg. Rosenberg. Matthew Rosenberg, along with uh, help from uh, Donny Cates, and is drawn by Nico Henricon and Jeff Shaw. Um, I really enjoyed issue number one. Issue number one, uh, for those of you who haven't read it, go read it. Um, basic synopsis is that uh, this is some alternate world. We don't know what's going on. Um, we don't know why things have changed. It's almost, it's almost, stay with me here, it's almost like a Marvel Flashpoint. Ooh. I know. So, um... Yeah, so um, this is really interesting. Uh, Marvel Knights was an imprint in the uh, late 90s, overseen by uh, current CCO of Marvel, Joe Quesada, that really took a lot of street-level characters, Punisher, Daredevil, etc., um, and really gave them a revamp to make them more viable as characters. So this is kind of a celebration of that, um, a celebration of just how big this uh this whole imprint was for them and they are using that to tell an all-new story with these familiar characters so um i really enjoyed the first issue i think you will too uh let's jump into the 
da, 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 into the synopsis. Okay, so it looks like from what I've been doing from my research, the synopsis is pretty much the same as the first issue. So if you haven't heard that, I'm going to go for it here. If you have heard that, if you want to skip ahead like 30 seconds, feel free. In celebration of the legendary imprint founded by Marvel's CCO Joe Quesada, a new crop of talent stands poised to tell a groundbreaking story across the Marvel Universe. In the cemetery, the blind man does not know who he is or why he has come to this particular grave at this particular moment. He doesn't know the burly police officer with the wild story who has approached him, or the strangely intense man who sits in the rear seat of the patrol car, his eyes flashing green. But all of that is about to change, because Matt Murdock is beginning to remember. In a colorless world without heroes, the spark of light must come from the dark. So yeah, I uh, really enjoy the first issue. I'm interested to see where the story goes, and I think you should pick it up. Uh, number two, we have Nightwing, number 53. Uh, this has been really interesting, uh, written by Benjamin Percy with art by Travis Moore and Mike Perkins. I've really been curious on how they're going to do this. Uh, the last issue featured, um, this band, this gang of like four police officers who are utilizing, uh, Dick, now Rick Grayson, that makes me so mad, um, his old Nightwing cave and his old Nightwing costumes to kind of dole out vigilante justice without any of the training. So I am really, really interested in seeing where this goes. So I'll jump into the synopsis right now. Nightwing was shot in the head, and now only Grayson remains, caught in the clutches of the Night Terrors. As the group of vigilantes take on the persona and mantle of Nightwing, he is forced to ante up his hand when one of his close friends is murdered. Will he cast his lot with his old superhero friends to take down these rogues, or will he decide to embrace his newfound abilities and fight against those who have wronged him? The answer lies somewhere in the gray area when an unexpected threat from Scarecrow changes the game. So I want to make sure I get this right because I have in my notes written down the uh, creative team but I was incorrect uh, so uh, Nightwing number 53 is being written by uh, Scott Lobdell with help by uh, Fabian Nicieza Nicieza I don't know how to pronounce that uh, with uh, art by Travis Moore and Patrick Zercher and the cover is done by Chris Mooneyham uh, I am a big fan of Nightwing. Uh, I have been for a really long time. I kind of dropped off the book recently just because it wasn't really my cup of tea. But I'm interested to see where this goes and where this story ends up for him. Uh, number three, we have West Coast Avengers number four. Uh, this is written by Kelly Thompson with art by Stefano Caselli. I have been loving this book. Um, this is quirky. This is L.A. This is everything that I uh, really enjoy about both the city and about comics so um it's just been really good and seeing these characters interacting with each other again i know i've said this before but i feel like this has the potential to be a modern day teen titans and i really like that idea um i love the fact that both hawkeyes are on this team i'm a huge clint barton fan and i've really been getting into kate bishop slowly as well so I'm just interested in seeing all these characters. We'll jump to the synopsis. 
If the team thought a 50-foot version of Tigra was trouble, just wait till they get a load of her friends. That's right, it's close encounters of the very large and destructive kind, as the West Coast Avengers try to save the day from B-movie monster-sized threats roaming Los Angeles. And while her team takes the direct approach, Kate Bishop finds herself in a compromising position when trying to get ahead of the game. Is she going to end up on the wrong side of this battle? Um, again, I've just I've been really enjoying it. Um, I really love this book, and I think you will too. Uh, it's light, fun superhero mayhem in Los Angeles. What more could you ask for, right? All right. Next up here we have Batman number fifty nine, uh, written by Tom King with Mikkel Janin on art. I am really interested in this story. Uh, this is Batman and the Penguin kind of teaming up. And this is just another step towards uh, the huge conclusion that Tom King is planning near the end of his 100-issue uh, run. So I am all for it. So we'll jump to the synopsis. Caught between Batman and his unseen enemy, the Penguin has to think on his feet to avoid being taken down by either side. If he chooses one way, he goes to jail. If he chooses the other, he ends up dead. Then again, the choice seems obvious. Is Batman ready for a new kind of avian sidekick? So, again, I've really enjoyed Penguin as a character for a really long time. I think he's one of Batman's best villains just from what he represents as kind of a twisted version of what Bruce Wayne could have ended up as. So I am all for seeing uh, how the two of them fit together as a team. Uh, definitely pick this one up. You're not going to want to miss this one. And finally, we have Spider-Geddon number four. This is uh, number four out of five. This has been just pushing out, really just going one after the other, along with the tie-ins, too. It's like, I think it's been, if it hasn't been every week, it's been every other week, but this has been really solid. This has been really good so far. Uh, it's written by Christos Gage with art by uh, George Molina. And this one kind of promises to be a turning point for the story where... Uh, at least from it looks like the cover in the synopsis, um, Superior Spider-Man is gonna have to make a choice here, and it looks like he might not end up choosing the winning, uh, choosing the heroic side. So um, we'll jump in the synopsis here. As long as Solus, the father of the Inheritors, has not returned, the spiders still stand a chance. If he is revived, it means Kane and Spider-Woman's Spider Force has fallen. And the spider eaters have one leader, one cause, total annihilation. So yeah, it's been just zero to hundred from the get go. Um, I've it's been really interesting because the first Spider Verse book uh, really had our six one six Pete at the forefront, and this one has largely kept him kind of sidelined from the main story. Uh, it's been really kind of contained in the Peter Parker Spectacular Spider Man book. Uh, which I guess from a publishing uh, perspective is smart, since that did just have a shakeup of creative team and they want people to still pick up the book. So I I have really been enjoying the banter between all the different Spider-Men, and of course as we're building towards uh, Into the Spider-Verse in December, um, I'm all for lots and lots of Spider-Man. Um, and this has been a really interesting story with like trying to revive the uh, cloning project, the fact that the Inheritors are now all together on the 616, where previously I believe it was just Morloon. Um, 
who had made his way to 616. So it's it's really interesting. And there's always that uh, there's always that chance that uh, Superior Spider-Man's gonna stab everybody in the back. And he's he's again he's my favorite version of Spider-Man. So I'm interested to see where he goes from here. Um, that is it for this week in comics. Let me know what you thought of the uh, the alternating synopsis synopses voices. Um, I figure since I am uh, since I ultimately started this podcast as a way to keep my uh, voice acting chops up as I uh, maneuver and navigate my way through the world of being a voice actor. I should play around with the voices a little bit more so let me know uh what you thought of the voices i used today uh we'll kind of play around mess around with them as uh the weeks go by and hopefully we'll find some uh find some fun voices for different comics um and i think that is gonna wrap it up for this week i hope you enjoyed the uh the, the reviews both of them um uh, look forward to the review for castlevania next week as well as the um, uh, next step in our Kingdom Hearts retrospective, which will be Kingdom Hearts Coded. Uh, I just finished um, going through all of it last night, and it's um, I won't spoil it here, but it was it was it's it's a doozy. Uh, so. Um, I will see you next week and the week after for that. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, feel free to uh, let me know again if I missed any comics or what your thoughts are on uh, Crimes of Grindelwald or uh, Daredevil Season 3 on Twitter. You can reach out to me, give us a follow, and tweet at us at GeekSplainedPod. That's at GeekSplainedPod. Or you can send emails, because I'm an old man and I still read emails. You can send any of those to geeksplained at gmail.com. Love interacting with you guys. I love talking to you guys about all manner of geeky stuff, including uh, the future of this podcast. So I will see you next week. Again, enjoy Thanksgiving. Enjoy lots of turkey, lots of uh, mashed potatoes. I know I will. If you don't eat any of that stuff, enjoy whatever you enjoy uh, eating on Thanksgiving. Um, for Geek Explain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening. Happy Thanksgiving, and we will see you next time.